Baruch Hashem Yahweh. There we go. Get some audio sound. Ah, blessings, blessings. So we did an introduction last night, and we're talking about the primacy and the potency of Yahusha. And the whole purpose and premise for the, the teaching series here at Passover this season, for me, is the hope that we would address some of those topics that come up and are used against the disciples of Yahusha by the synagogue of Satan, by those maybe in the messianic movement that are being influenced to exit and go into rabbinical Judaism because of the zeal, zeal, zeal for the letter of the Torah, but not seeing the fruit or the spirit of the Torah, which is the embodiment, the primacy, and the power of Yahusha. So, again, these false constructs constructing a straw man argument with heavy Hebraic, Strong's numbers, Talmudic, or synagogue of Satan interpretations that is propped up that then is easily blown over to those that are new coming into the Torah movement. Because you're like, oh yes, you're starting to see that there is much paganism, much compromise that has happened in the face, and many, many, many traditions that we have inherited, so that it's very easy just to start casting everything off. So you mentioned, I, I just met you a couple of days ago, and uh, I think one of the first things you said to me, Stuart, was you had a problem with the Trinity. Is that correct? He does. Okay, what's your problem with the Trinity? I'm putting him on the spot here. Huh? <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't exist? It certainly does exist. Okay, but where does it exist? Does it exist to the b in the Bible? So sometimes these are the very things that people... Did you like that I put you on the spot? These are... So he's not sure where I'm going with this. But yeah, but these are some of the things that are brought up and then people are like, oh my goodness, well, well maybe you're right. Well, oh, oh. And, and it can lead to the denial of Messiah and throwing away, heaven forbid, of Yahusha if we don't quite comprehend what is reality, biblically, what is truth, and then what confuses and muddies the water. So what a great place to start on the primacy and the potency of Yahusha, the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is usually summed up as a belief in one God existing in three distinct but equal persons. Sounds fine so far, right? Not to me. But to many, that sounds quite acceptable. But the key point here, three distinct but equal persons, okay? So, we have to realize that it's a common assumption among, an assumption among many, many a sincere, and I mean this, sincere Christian and Christian people that the word Trinity is in the Bible. But it actually does not appear in the pages of the Bible. Anywhere whatsoever. Now, the language of the doctrine 
is the language of the ancient church, and it is taken straight out of pagan Greek philosophy. This is what we're going to discover. In fact, many of you may have this as a study tool. In the New Ungers Bible Dictionary, in its article, it concedes that the Trinitarian concept is humanity in is humanly, excuse me, incomprehensible. And this is what it says. It's actually quite interesting. Now, Cyril Richardson, who is a professor of church history at New York's Union Theological Seminary, though a dedicated Trinitarian himself, he said this in his book, The Doctrine of the Trinity. Now, he's a dedicated Trinitarian. He's a professor of history at New York's Union Theological Seminary. And this is what he says. My conclude. Now listen to this. This is really powerful. Because we'll break this down and deconstruct it. My conclusion then about the doctrine of the Trinity is that it is an artificial construct. It produces confusion rather than clarification. And while the problems with which it deals are real ones, it's a key point, the solutions it offers are not illuminating. <laughs> it has posed for many Christians dark and mysterious statements which are ultimately meaningless because it does not sufficiently discriminate its use of terms. This is on page 148, 149 of what he wrote back in 1958. So this guy admits that there's some problems, but what's really key to me is it produces confusion rather than clarification, and this is what I really like, and while the problems with which it deals are real ones, the solutions it offers are not illuminating. So we can't just say, oh, the Trinity is a false doctrine, um, let's not deal with it. Because it is trying to deal with some actual problems, quote, unquote, that we do see in the text. It is actually trying to deal with those problems. But, if we're really honest, it doesn't bring us any good solutions. It really doesn't. In fact, you've got the whole ice, water, steam, you've got the egg, the yolk, the shell, and all of these crazy things, and you're like, what are we, are we having breakfast? Are we having, like, scrambled eggs? What? I, I thought we were in Bible study. Yeah, what, well, we're getting an ice water? I don't want any ice in my water. I'm from England, for crying out loud. And then somebody's trying to explain the Trinity to me. Very confusing, very confusing. Now, he also admitted this, quote, Much of the defense of the Trinity as a revealed doctrine is really an evasion of the objections that can be brought against it. He said that on page 16. So, why do even those, I'll pose you this question, why do even those who believe in the Trinity doctrine find it so hard to explain themselves? 
right? If you believe so much so, why are you finding it so hard to explain yourselves? The answer is simple, and it is quite shocking. It's because the Bible doesn't teach it. <laughs> right? It really is. I mean, it's that simple. In fact, in the early second century, Ignatius wrote to Trialians, and he said thus, They introduced God as a being unknown. They suppose Christ to be unbegotten. Some of them say that the Son is a mere man, and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are but the same person, and that the creation of the work of God, not by Christ, but by some other strange power. I'm already confused. Be on your guard, therefore, against such persons. What persons? Now I'm like three persons, one person, strange powers. It's already confusing to me because you haven't given me a Bible verse to explain what you're trying to communicate. And there is the problem. You're talking about eggs, shells, yolks, water, ice, steam. You're saying one plus one plus one equals one. I mean, this is like Barack Obama math to me, you know? I'm like, I don't get it. I mean, maybe that's what they're teaching you in school nowadays. They most probably are, right? Male and female equals who knows what nowadays, right? So, yeah. But the basic premise to it is flawed, as we will see and discover. My point in all this, laughing aside, is that what I have found in my experience in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement is that the Trinity doctrine is attacked because there are problems. It's not in the Bible. But then if you don't offer biblical solutions, then you could easily lead beloved, beloved saints of Yahushua down the garden path to Judaism, destruction, and hell. And we must have a defense of the true faith. So we have to address these things because it is real. It is true that it's not in the Bible, but that's not good enough because people's faith is under attack and they have not been given the equipment in the Bible to explain. Well, what is Yahushua then? Who is Yahushua? How do we understand the primacy and potency of the Lamb without having to go into pagan doctrines, without having to go into Judaism, which would deny the very beloved Lamb himself? We have to come up with solutions. So the Bible, we can all agree, sitting here, is our only reliable source of divine revelation. Amen? Amen. Amen. And the truth, as we'll all see, is that the Trini Trinity concept simply is not part of Yahweh's revelation to mankind. Now, does anybody here have a Ryrie reference Bible? Good, because otherwise you'd be first in the river. Okay. <laughs> The, the <laughs> professor, 
Professor Charles Ryrie's study Bible. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's like a Baptist-like classic in your book, boot camp. Okay? I mean, so Charles Ryrie and his study Bible, his notes are so misleading. You've got pre-tribulation, rapture. You've got all of this mumbo-jumbo nonsense and Christian doctrine that has just been espoused really over in, in, in quite recent history. You know, that builds into all this Zionism, all this love for Israel, John Hagee, they all use it, okay? The Ryrie Study Bible. This is what he says. This is quite amazing. Many doctrines are accepted by evangelicals as being clearly taught in the scripture for which there are no proof texts. <laughs> wow, thank you. Thank you, Charles. The doctrine of the Trinity furnished, furnishes the best example of this. Well, good man. It is fair to say that the Bible, it is fair to say that the Bible does not clearly teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, our man, he's actually finally admitting something here. And then he goes on to say this. In fact, there is not even one single proof text. If by proof text we mean a verse, yes, we do. We do. A verse or a passage that clearly states that there is one God who exists in three persons. Charles Ryrie admits it's not in the Bible. So what have we got here? We have got to get to the root of this because it is very easily propped up by Judaism and blown right down. And then people are led astray and they're like, you're right. Oh yes, I need to become a super Torah zealot and the Trinity is a false doctrine. Therefore, Yahushua can't be the Messiah. And this is their thinking because Judaism, Messianic Judaism, the synagogue of Satan wants to prop up the straw man of the Trinity. And it is a straw man to anybody who is biblically literate and then blow it over and then you're done. It's a straw man argument though. So let's get to the reality. We know that the Trinity actually got its start in ancient Babylon, of course, with Nimrod, Tammuz, Semiramis, because we know the story, don't we? Nimrod, of course, wanted to create his own empire and receive worship and power. And if you want true power, then power comes by spiritual authority and then having those submitted to your priesthood class, right? Which is why we have to stick with the authenticity of the Malkitzedic because he's the authority and we are submitted under Yahushua and then we're free from men's bogus corruptions. But not with Nimrod, no. He had a whole priestly class that were doing all of this worship and all of this um, temple service under his authority. And his wife, she was part of it, Semiramis. But there was a problem. He died. <laughs> well, that's not good because in a patriarchal society now, without the man, and he's dead, so of course his wife, Bewitch, comes up with this great idea. Well, hang on a minute. 
let's tell everybody, because this is all part of our pagan worship, that he actually ascended into the heavens and he became the sun god. Now we can worship him as the sun god. And then guess what? She gets knocked up by some other pagan priest, I'm sure. That's a problem, right? So she says, well, no, actually, I got pregnant by the rays of the sun. And then lo and behold, she's out in the forest at December the 25th, and a fir tree sprigs up from a stump. She picks it and puts it to her nose. The prophet Ezekiel reads, um, tells us about this. And lo and behold, she becomes pregnant with baby Tammuz. But then there's another problem. She dies. Well, this is a big problem. Everyone's dying, right? So what happens now is we've got to continue to conjure up the story. So she actually then goes up into the heavens, but she's so divine that the gods send her back, her husband, the sun god, sends her back in a giant egg that lands in the Euphrates River that splits open, and then to proclaim her deity, she turns a bird into an egg-laying rabbit or some kind of nonsense like that, and where now you start to see where all of this paganism goes. Okay? So this is the creation of these false religions. Now, little baby Tammuz, of course, grows up, and he's, uh, he's hunting. He's 40 years old. He's out in the woods hunting, and he gets killed by a wild boar in his 40th year. Well, hang on a minute. This is a great opportunity to turn this into a religious custom. So they institute one day of weeping for Tammuz for every year of his life. You get the days of the weeping for Tammuz, or... 40 days of weeping for Tammuz, where you deny yourself pleasure in this world for pleasure in the afterworld. Why don't we just, you know, let's cut to the chase. Why don't we just call it Lent, <laughs> right? So now we've got Easter, we've got eggs, we've got bunnies that let, I mean, who knows, chocolate bunny. I don't know how chocolate got into it, but, you know, I'm sure there's some reason for it. But this is a bunch of nonsense. But this is what got adopted into the faith that was once delivered to the saints, its pagan, pagan origins. So, of course, this then goes and gets exported to the nations, even into Egypt. Later in Egypt, the Trinity became Osiris, Horus, and Isis. And in India, then, these pagan customs of the three, of course, you had Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. Father, Son, Mother, Queen of Heaven, these customs of the Trinity, the triune gods, three gods in one family, right, gets exported to Egypt, it gets exported to India. In India, you have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and then the Romans, of course, you have Jupiter, you have Mars, and you have Venus. All with the common denominator. What? The three in one. Okay? The common denominator is that they all started at the very same place. The Tower of Babel. And this is easy to deconstruct this straw man theology. But now, at the Tower of the Babel, of course, Tower of Babel, we have the confusion of the languages. So they all have different names, right? You've got Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Osiris, Horus, Isis, Ceramet. I mean, it's just preposterous, isn't it? Depending on where it gets exported to. So, 
as these languages get confused. And this goes all the way back into the ancient world as far as we can go. And we find that all of the known cultures have a three-in-one triune God. And it all comes from Babel. It all comes from the Tower of Babel, thanks to Nimrod. And then we get the crazy math. One plus one plus one equals one. And common people are like, well, hang on a minute. I mean, that's Barry, Barry Obama math. That doesn't make no sense to me. I mean, we even see this in the ancient worship of the sun. Even the worship of the sun, we have that split up into three stages of the sun. You have the newborn sun at the dawning of the day. Then you have the mature and full-grown sun at noon. And then you have the old and dying sun at the end of the day. You have the triune sun. Now, the Egyptians divided the sun and the sun god into three deities. You had Horus, which was the rising sun. You had Ra, which, of course, we see in the Bible was the midday sun. And then you had Osiris, which was the old setting sun, the three-in-one sun. This is, again, adopted and taken out toward all the nations. And listen to what is said in this writing. This is a very ancient writing from about 3,000 years ago. And it's called the Puranas, and it's one of the Hindu writings. And like I said, it's from more than 3,000 years ago. This is Hindu twaddle. <laughs> oh, you three lords! Know that I recognize only one God. Inform me, therefore, which of you is truly divinity, that I may address him alone in my adorations. The three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, becoming manifest to him, replied, Learn, O devotee, that there is no real distinction between us. What to you appears such is only a semblance. The single being appears under three forms by the acts of creation, preservation, and destruction. But he is one. Who's confused? <laughs> can, can you see how this then, the Romans got a hold of this and thought, oh, this makes perfect sense to us. You know, those bathhouse boys, you know, give them a doctrine and away they go. Good grief. <laughs> Who's heard of the true quetra? I was in my Bible this morning. This is, of course, my old Bible. It's the new King James. You may be able to see it. Ah! It's right there. See that? Uh, who's got that in their Bible? You can see it right there on the camera, right? It's the three, it's the three, yeah? It's a blooming hard word to pronounce. True quetra. It's the true quetra. It's where the, th how do you say it? True quetra. True, true quetra. It's where three sixes are overlaid and often used as a trinity symbol in the New King James right here, Okay. And in many Bibles, including Matthew, 
It's actually, oh, I'm going to have to rip this page out, but it's got some really good notes in it. It's actually a satanic symbol that has its origins in the occult. It's always been associated with pagan beliefs, satanic practices, and witch witchcraft, but it's in my New Geneva Study Bible. What the hell is going on? And I mean that literally, right? Yes, white out. Now, how do we pronounce it again, Mario? The true quetra. True quetra? Is that how we're going to say it? Yeah, we're going to say it like that. Now, because this true quetra is the ancient symbol for the pagan trinity, the symbol was actually popularized by a Satanist known as Aleister Crowley, and it was used among witches and warlocks. How did it end up in our Bibles? And it's not only in my New King Jimmy. I think it's in the New American Standard, some, some, and I believe you may even find it in certain publications of the Royal King Jimmy itself, depending on the publication. This is a problem. As I was reading the New King Jimmy this morning, Look, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last times. As you have heard that the Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that this is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, it says thus, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Yahushua is the Messiah? He is the anti-Messiah that denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denieth the Son, the same has not the Father, but that he that acknowledges the Son also has the Father. Amen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, it is written, And every spirit that confesseth not that Yahushua is the Messiah, come in the flesh, is not of Elohim. And this, in fact, is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And finally, 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, for many deceivers, the synagogue of Satan, I added that, that's a little bit of a transliteration, have entered into the world who confess not that Yahushua is the Messiah and that he came in the flesh. This is a deceiver, this is Antichrist. That is what we're up against. And it's apparent to me, and I believe apparent to you as you look and study, from the Bible, that the first and second century believers were encountering the kind of falsehood that we are encountering. They were encountering some kind of falsehood that had crept into the congregations, where people were setting up a straw man theology and then in the midst of believers, and this was causing 
a trouble in the faith community. Therefore, these writings that I just quoted were addressing a symptom of a big problem. A big problem that has risen its ugly head in the Messianic and Hebrew roots movement. More people being led astray in the denial of the Messiah, Yahushua, that he came in the flesh because of these straw man arguments that are set up full of Hebraic, full of Torah, full of Strong's numbers, full of backing by Luciferic rabbis that hate Yahushua, that then get invited to congregations. And you're like, why would you let somebody teach you about the Bible that denies that Yahushua is the Son? Well, they have the Father. They know Yahuwah. Um, that's not what the Bible says. No. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father, you don't have a voice in the congregation of the righteous. You don't have a voice. You are not welcome. And anybody who listens to any teacher that denies the Son is an idiot. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So let's bring some truth into the situation. It's a miscarriage of truth to believe in any other divinity than plural monotheism. Plural monotheism is what the Bible teaches. But there's a straw man that's set up. Judaism. Does Judaism believe in plural monotheism? believe in singular monotheism, which smacks and flies in the face of the very watchword of the faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad, pound unity, a compound unity. All right, we're going to have a audio check here. Testing, one, two, three. All right. Nothing, a little bit of duct tape and a knife can't take care of. I was a bit scared I was going to electrocute myself. All right. Huh? Well, there is a power cord right here somewhere, back here. There was an
we're back. Here's your knife. We'll, we'll save that for later. So Judaism believes in singular monotheism. That's a problem. Roman Constantinianism Christianity believes in triune monotheism. And then, of course, we have Islam. Islam, of course, is a poser. The Islam poses. <laughs> Islam poses as monotheism. But in reality, Islam has its foundations in the rock bed of polytheism. Because Allah is one of the 365 daily deities enshrined at the Kaaba, which Muhammad picked out and chose to exalt over all others after he was rejected by Arabian monotheistic Jews because they rejected his fetishisms and his iconolatry. That is when he went to the Kaaba and he said, well, I'm going to choose one of the 365 daily deities and exalt that as the one true God, which we know is not true. So, this isn't something new to the faith, dealing with these kind of claims and counterclaims. This is something that the first century believers had to deal with a lot because people were coming in and saying all kinds of nonsense about the risen Savior. They were claiming him he was a phantom. They were claiming that he was adopted. They were claiming that he was a human being. They were claiming that he wasn't a human being, that he was a ghost, that he wasn't really human at all. There were all kinds of doctrines going on, and they were countered in the New Testament. And I want to explain those doctrines to you that the first century faith were up against because then I think you're going to be seeing what we're actually up against today. Okay, there were five belief systems, five belief systems, and we'll see these explained and countered in the New Testament. So this is actually really, if we're going to use a highbrow religious term, we are looking at the study of Christology. Okay? This is called Christology. We're looking at Messiah in the first century. We're going to look at five belief systems. I believe in one of these belief systems. Okay? I do personally. I'll share with you what my belief system is. You will either agree and um, we'll be happy or you'll want to stone me if you disagree. So, number one, I don't believe this. Number one is pro-orthodoxy. Now, what happens with history? Who writes history? The victors write history, don't they? The victors, whoever won these five arguments, writes the history. And that is what Roman Catholicism and then Protestantism and now evan evangelical Christianity ride on. They're going off of the records of the victors. The victors were proto-orthodox or pro-orthodoxy. Today's modern Christianity won out and got to write the history. Yahusha is one in three of the Trinity. 
This is pro-orthodoxy. It is the triune Godhead. And the proof text, of course, is 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. But it wouldn't be sufficient by itself. So we have to add in a few later. I think there's only four, possibly five Greek manuscripts that came along a lot later that was introduced into this text, and you may know it as the Johannine comma, the Johannine comma. I'll quote it with the Johannine comma, and then I'll quote it without the Johannine comma. This is the text that is used to support pro-orthodoxy, 1 John 5, 6. Turn in there with your Bibles. See if you have the Johannine comma, Hopefully, it will be either not in your Bibles or at least it will be italicized. If it's italicized, then you know it's actually not in the text. Okay? 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. This is the support proof text of pro-orthodoxy. This is he that came by water and blood, even Yahushua the Messiah. Not by water only but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record. Now, what I'm about to say is the Johannine comma. This is actually added from four or five later manuscripts. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth. That's the Johannine comma. Who says that? Okay. Okay, that's not in the Bible. It's really not. There are four or five out of close to 5,000 Greek manuscripts. There's four or five very late ones that do have that in. But it was added by the funky monks to support pro-orthodoxy because their history was winning because they crushed the rebels. So then they added it in, okay? They added in these words. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth. This is the Johannine comma. It was added by the victors to support the Trinitarian doctrine. Then it goes on to say, this actually is in the Bible, the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree in one. So the Johannine comma was a key pillar in upholding the construction of the fabricated Trinity doctrine. It first appeared in the Latin Vulgate. Thank you. The Latin Vulgate, and it wasn't until the ninth century when the history had fully been cemented, the rebels had been crushed, the four other rebel cat categories that we're going to look at, including our faith category had already been crushed, and they then cemented it in with the funky monks into the Bible. In the ninth century, in the Latin Vulgate, the first Greek manuscript that actually contains the comma dates from the 15th century. I mean, that's pretty recent, isn't it? This is Queen Mary time, 
Bloody Mary, right? When if you even spoke the Bible in English, you were burnt at the stake. Just by standing up in church on, on Sunday and quoting, in the beginning, Elohim created that. That's it. Take him off and burn him at the stake. Because you were reading the Bible in the English tongue and it was only allowed to be liturgically read in Latin. And therefore, hundreds, hundreds of Christian saints that were reading the Bible for themselves and going, well, this isn't in the Bible. <laughs> they were burnt at the stake by Queen Mary or Bloody Mary around this very time. There's only four or five Greek manuscripts that have the Johannine comma. That is the winners. Pro-orthodoxy, first category. Second category, which I also do not believe, I was so offended. I got born again in 19, August 1996. I went round my father and mother-in-law's one evening with my wife. It must have been about 97 or 98. I was a baby Christian. And they had the Jesus movie of the late 90s. I think it was 97 or 98. I, I looked at my wife and I said, I, I, we have to leave. She's like, what do you mean? I said, I, we cannot watch this. This is not right. I mean, I was a baby Christian, but the spirit of Yahweh was in me, and I knew that, that movie was adoptionist. If you look at the movie, don't. But if you have, you'll remember. <laughs> Adoptionists are the second category. Yahusha is a mere man who was adopted at the baptism. Others believe that he was adopted at the resurrection to become the son of Elohim. And that is the premise of the late 90s Jesus movie. And in fact, I know this man. I'm not going to say his name because I've matured. <laughs> I would have called him out a few years ago and I would have even done an accent, but I'm not going to do it. But I do know of a popular messianic teacher on the circuit. And here is a direct quote. I'm behaving myself. I know he's looking at me right there. Um, Mr. Leach is eyeballing me. And he's like, but I'm not going to do it, Greg. It's going to be cool. But here is a direct, it's like, you are your own worst enemy. Here is a direct quote from an audio snippet from a popular Messianic Torah teacher, and this is from a recent conference. Quote, now listen to this. Yeshua was born not knowing, and he had to learn, like us, through the Old Testament. He didn't know he was the Savior of the world. He had to figure it out in Scripture who he was, just like you guys do, end quote. Outrageous. I'm going to repeat that. Yeshua was born not knowing, and he had to learn like us through the Old Testament. He didn't know he was the Savior of the world. He had to figure it out in Scripture who he was, 
just like you guys do. And their proof text is Romans chapter 1, verse 3. This is their proof text. Yeshua the Messiah, our Master, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared, and declared to be the Son of Elohim with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Meaning, in their sick and twisted mind, he was a normal man. He had no idea that he was the Savior of the world. He had to go and study the Bible, figure it out as he was going along, just like you guys. And then guess what? He was then declared to be the Savior of the world. Oh, really? I'm the Savior? Oh, wow! And when did this happen? By the resurrection. Wow, what a day of declaration that would have been, right? Talk about the Declaration of Independence. My goodness, he was independent from the rest of humanity on such a day, according to these nut jobs in the Messianic movement. All right, and here's another one. Luke chapter 3, verse 32. Of course, the proof text for this nonsense. And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved son. Today I have Huey Thessia adopted you. So today, at that point, at the baptism, suddenly he was adopted by Yahuwah. He was just a normal bloke before then. And he was adopted. And this is the Jesus movie of the late 90s. And I, when I saw that, and it was, it was at that point when I said, I've got to leave. I could not watch the movie because it churned and grieved the Holy Spirit in me so much that I, as a new believer, I remember it so clearly, clearly, I had to get up and leave. This is called the adoptionist theology. These were the second group that were running around in the first century, and those were their two proof texts. He was adopted at the baptism, one sect, Another, he was adopted at the resurrection. But before that, he was clueless, just a normal bloke, just like you, and he was figuring it out and then came into the revelation. He was adopted. The third sect were the separationists. We're looking at Christology here, okay? Because we are going to be able to see what is straw man theology and what is the true faith. The separationists... Again, I don't believe in this either. This is what they believed. Yeshua is a mere man who was adopted at the baptism to become the son of Elohim, but then the divine separates at the suffering stage to return to heaven, leaving Yeshua to endure the passion all alone. He was abandoned, separated, and of course, their proof text is Matthew 27, verse 45. My Eloah, my Eloah, why have you forsaken me? He was separated and abandoned, separationist. Now, how did they counter these claims? Of course, they had to counter these claims. It appears in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. The true believers were like, that's not true. 
You're twisting the words of Scripture. So, 1 John writes, every spirit that homo legeo does not confess, Yahushua is not from Eloah. So that's how they countered the separationists. Now, an old text manuscript counter to the separationists was every spirit that Chorzero um, separates Yahushua is not from Eloah. Okay? So they were counting, countering this separational theology. Now, the fourth sect of early believers in Christology, there was two sects under this category. I believe, and I'm one of the beliefs in this sect, okay? But you're going to have to bear with me, otherwise you're going to get the wrong, wrong end of the shtick. <laughs> Docetics. A docetic. It comes from the Greek word docetism. Docetism, to seem or to appear. Docetism, to seem or to appear. There were two sects under the docetics. Sect A were reformist docetics. I don't believe in this, but this is what they believe. Yahushua seemed or appeared to be human and experienced suffering, yet he was not in fleshly form. He was actually a phantom. Okay? So this is the first subsect of docetics. I don't believe that. But this was the counter to that belief. So the true believers were like, no, no, that's not right. So First John writes this in the fourth chapter, as a counter to that false belief system. Beloved Israel, do not believe every spirit, but test all the spirits, whether they are from Yahuwah, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this shall you know the spirit of Yahuwah. Every spirit that confesses that Yahushua is Messiah and has come in the flesh is from Yahuwah. And every spirit that does not confess that Yahushua the Messiah has come in the flesh is not from Yahuwah. And this is the spirit of anti-Messiah. So the true believers in the first century penned the writing of 1 John 4.1 as a counterclaim to the reformist docetics that said that Yahushua just appeared, he was a phantom, he wasn't really in the flesh. But sect B, orthodox docetics, is what I believe. So if I was around in the first century, I would be under the category of a docetic, but I would not be a reformist docetic. I would be an orthodox docetic. What is an orthodox docetic? Yahushua appeared in human form, was crucified and resurrected, yet his flesh was not from human origins, dust, but it was heavenly in its origin. And the proof text for that is John chapter 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread who came down from the heaven. If many man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. Where did his flesh come from? Heaven. Heaven. He appeared. See, and this is where docetism, he appeared. He appeared to be human. But his body was not from human origins, dust. It was from the heavens. This is huge. Because this is orthodox docetism. And it is the foundation of our faith because you can blow over the Trinity doctrine and we shall still stand. You can blow over the human sacrifice. Well, that's not a Torah principle. That's true. That's true. And we shall still stand. You can blow over all of these synagogue of Satan arguments against Messiah and we shall stand on the proto-orthodoxy of docetism. Because people are saying, oh, Yahuwah, animals and human sacrifices against the Torah. Well, yes. Well, therefore, Yahusha can't be the Messiah. Well, hang on a minute. The Bible defines a human as their body comes from the dust. So we don't have a problem here. So your straw man argument collapses on top of itself and Yahushua still stands. Well, the Trinity is a false doctrine, yes. The plurality monotheism of the Shema still stands. Judaism may not believe it, but that's because they don't want to teach you the Ekad plurality. So Yahushua still stands. This is what we have to be able to counter in these days because the synagogue of Satan is busy at work today just as the synagogue of Satan was busy at work in the first century. Philippians 2 verse 8 And being found in the schema, Greek, appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the tree. His appearance was fully human. He walked amongst humans in the likeness of man. Thank you. But his body is from the heavens. John chapter 6 verse 48. So this is huge for us to understand. Now, that is what I believe. And I think you guys, as we can see, the scripture testifies to that truth. But there was a fifth sect a fifth sect, and they were called the Patri Passionist, the Patri Passionist sect. And they believed that Yahushua was God the Father who came down in human flesh. A Patri Passionist means one who believed the Father suffered. One who believed the Father suffered. One God, the Father himself, came down into a virgin, 
was himself born of her, himself suffered, indeed was himself Yahushua the Messiah. If Messiah is God, he must be that God. That is the Patrick Passionist. So let's be very clear. Yahuwah is the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Son is the Son. And the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. It's a compound unity. It is plural monotheism. But the Father is greater than the Son. Which by definition means that the Son is lesser than the Father. It is a plurality of powers, not persons. So you have three little people running around. It's the plurality of power. One plurality of power. So an example is Acts chapter 20 verse 28. The assembly of Elohim which he purchased with his own blood. So they say, well, exactly, this, this proves the Patri Passionist movement. Well, hang on a minute. And then they change that, though, to the assembly of the master, which he purchased with his own blood. So they changed it. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the son, he says, your throne, O Elohim, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom so out of all of these different sects that were around in the first century of course sect number one won out of course pro-orthodoxy won out and emerged as victor through direct response and counter to all of these alternative perspectives But we're doing ourselves a disservice if we just swallow the pro-orthodoxy version hook, line, and sinker without understanding that there were four other belief systems that were paramount and running around in the first century. Many of them were counted and explained in the Bible, and we can see the texts. Just because pro-orthodoxy with its Trinitarian formula won out doesn't make it so. In fact, it's important to examine the other doctrines and the other belief systems so that then you can compare it to the scripture and you can see what wins out. And I believe, as we'll go in later this afternoon or tomorrow into these understandings, you'll see that in fact it is the orthodox docetism where Yahushua appeared as a human, but his body was not of human origins. So to put it very clearly and succinctly to close, Yahushua is 100% Yahuwah, 0% man, cloaked in humanity, yet not from humanity's origins. His flesh, if you deny that he comes in the flesh, you are the spirit of anti-Messiah. Did Yahushua have flesh? Yes, he had flesh. He came in the flesh. He wasn't a ghost. 
He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't adopted. He didn't walk around and go, oh, today I've become enlightened and I'm the Messiah. He was born as the son of Yahuwah, but his birth, his flesh, was from the heavens, John chapter 6. This is the clarity and rock bed of our faith that withstands all of these straw men arguments that are being pushed today. This is the equipping of the saints. And Passover, it has to be all about the primacy and the potency and the power of the Savior. And I hope that this helps you to become stronger in your faith and more sure that when those come against the faith that was once delivered to the saints, you'll be like, that's a straw man argument. Or Yahweh doesn't believe in human sacrifice. So therefore, Yahushua can't be the Messiah. Um, yeah, but the Bible defines a human as their flesh is from the earth. So yeah, that would be a problem. But yeah, did you read John chapter 6? Our Messiah, he is 100% Yahweh, 0% man. Whereas when we were, when I was on the Sea of Galilee with Calvary Chapel, we'd be singing this song, Oh, the God man, the God man. You know, and I'm like, well, well he's 100% man and 100% God. I'm like, what kind of math is that again? Again, we get this crazy math, like 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. We got, you know, no, he could be 97% God and 3% man, right? That would be crazy, but, you know, no, you can't. He's 100% Yahweh, 0% man, cloaked in humanity, not from humanity's origins, the dust. He's from the heavens. Therefore, his flesh, yes, he came in the flesh, but it is, of course, the bosom of Yahweh. I explained it to my children when they were very young as El Shaddai. El Shaddai means Elohim, El, Shad, breast, Dai is sufficient. My kids were like, well, who's Yahushua? I said, well, look. It's really simple. Yahweh wanted to redeem mankind. What better way to redeem mankind than to tear out his bosom and form it that it became flesh, walked amongst humanity, and did the work of redemption to put us back into the heart of Yahweh. They're like, ah. Oh. That is why, of course, John the Beloved understood that Yahushua was El Shaddai. Elohim's breast is sufficient for your salvation. He was always reclining upon the Master's breast. You know, my kids didn't want to hear about an egg and <laughs> yolk and white and ice water steam and all that. They want to hear biblical truth. Yes. And I think when we come back to the foundations of the faith, makes us so much stronger. Amen. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Amen. Amen. It is quarter to twelve. So, um, let me check. It's lunch. It's lunch.